0: Hey everyone, welcome to the I Dare You podcast. This podcast, it is all about you and helping you reach the big goals that you have for your life and what next steps do you want to take to get there. Welcome to episode ninety nine. If you're listening to us for the first time, welcome to the room. Glad you're here. We have so many first time listeners, so uh, you are not alone. And for those who have been here for a while, welcome back to everyone. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast so that you do not miss an episode also follow us on instagram at i dare you pod a really cool community there many of you already are following and engaging with me and with others let's keep that going there you'll find incredible content free valuable everything designed to equip and inspire you to live your best life and also video snippets of every interview including this one our guest i am so excited about this Our guest is Susan Hendricks. I'm so honored to have her on the show. Her background, impeccable. Former CNN and HLN anchor, she anchored the network's live news program, Weekend Express, from 2016 to December of 2022. In addition, Susan delivered news updates for five years on Anderson Cooper's CNN primetime show, AC360. Now, among her many assignments at HLN, Susan anchored extensive coverage of the Delphi double murder investigation. Now, this episode is a bit of a hybrid because we are going to learn a lot from Susan and her career path that we can put into practice in our own lives. And then we're going to go deep into the Delphi double murder investigation. By the way, did you know, according to the Pew Research Center, True crime is the most common topic among top-ranked podcasts, and we're going to go there in this episode. In fact, about 25% of all top podcasts are primarily about true crime. And another fun fact, among U.S. podcast listeners, women are almost twice as likely as men to regularly listen to true crime podcasts. I'm not sure what that means exactly, but I just have to throw that out there because I find it interesting. Now, in preparation for this interview with Susan, I did a deep dive, deep dive into this case, and I just became engulfed in it. And I think you will, too, when you listen to this interview and Susan's description of this case. Now, here's what you need to know. First off, Susan is the author of a brand new book called Down the Hill, My Descent into the Double Murder in Delphi. Incredible book. Incredible read. And some of you know all the details about this, uh, or maybe it's just something you vaguely remember from a few years ago. Here's what you need to know. On February 13, 2017, two teenage girls, 13-year-old Abby Williams and 14-year-old Libby German, they decided to enjoy their day off from school by exploring the popular hiking trail near the Monan High Bridge, just a few minutes' drive from Libby's home in Delphi, Indiana. Libby's sister, Kelsey, whom we talk a lot about in the interview, she dropped the two girls off at the head of the trail and then waved to them as they walked down the path, which was the last time they'd ever be seen alive. Less than 24 hours later, their bodies were found in the north bank of Deer Creek, about a mile from where they were last seen. Not a lot of clues, little to go on in terms of physical evidence, except except for the visual and audio remnants of a strange encounter the girls had with a stranger just hours before their disappearance. That encounter was unsettling enough that Libby had thought to record it on her cell phone as it unfolded. No, obviously, the Delphi murders, tragic. And the investigation, as you hear, it is complicated and nuanced. And to tell this story, you have got to be smart. You have to be relentless and also extremely compassionate. She uses her background in investigative journalism, but also has such a heart and compassion for the families, as you'll hear. If this intrigues you, at the very end of the podcast, there's an additional seven minutes of bonus interview with Susan where she goes even deeper into the specific happenings of this case. So don't miss that. So now, everyone, with that as a setup, oh my goodness, we have Susan Hendricks on the I Dare You podcast, a lot to learn and a compelling story to share. Here, everyone, is Susan Hendricks. Susan, welcome to the I Dare You podcast. It is so good to have you here.
1: Darren, it's so great to be on. I'm so excited to talk with you and to talk about the latest developments in the um, never-ending drama that appears surrounding the Delphi case.
0: I've been doing a crash course on the Delphi case. Holy Um, smokes. I know. I know. I knew this much, and I am captivated. Unbelievable case. Many people know the story. We're going to talk a lot about that. Let's set the stage, though, first. You are a veteran broadcast journalist. Many people know you and your work over the years at CNN and HLN. But let's go back further. Where did all of this start for you? How did you get to CNN and HLN?
1: It started, I went to uh, Arizona State University and I didn't know what I was going to do, except maybe have some fun going into uh, college. My sister going to Boston College, and she's older, and I would visit there, and I decided it's freezing. I'm going somewhere warm. So it was that simple. Well, fast forward, my roommates there, one of them was majoring in broadcast journalism and other communications. So I I wasn't clear. We were signing up for the next semester, and I thought, oh, I'll take a communications course. And we went together that whole semester. And it just so happens Walter Cronkite spoke because it's the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism. And I mean, it was packed, but you didn't have to mm. be in the class to go. And, and the whole uh, massive study hall was, was jam-packed. And he just... As you know, such a kind soul, like my parents, my grandparents were fans of Walter Cronkite and everything he witnessed through history, of course, Um, when our president died, John Kennedy, and announcing that. And so many things stand out. And he was just a kind soul and talking about being part of history. So I thought, okay, this this is my major. I got it. And there was no clear way to kind of get there. Uh, you had to, so I graduated and then moved to Los Angeles because uh, my friends were moving there and I decided, oh, I'll sign up for graduate courses at UCLA here and there. Well, that was the right thing to do because I met people who had similar interests in what I was doing and then ended up meeting someone who said, hey, a station, it was a small TD station, not even a broadcast station. It's called Santa Ana now, a cable station. Based in Seal Beach, California, and I worked two days a week. And my first story was lawn bowling. And I thought in a retirement center and I thought I made it. <laughs> I, I called my parents. I'm in. So uh, I worked there for about six months. And, uh, you know, I had the, the outfit, my one black suit. It was so hot, but I'm there with a microphone. And then you put a tape together somehow, some way. I know I have that somewhere in my basement. I'd love to watch it. And then uh, was hired at a Palm Springs affiliate, ABC. And uh, work there for three years. Because we were a feeder market, if you will, being in Palm Springs in that location, we'd go on similar stories to Los Angeles. So three years every day, four live shots a day. I mean, you just had to do it. That was really your training. Just do it. Talk about what you see. Uh, Breaking news, I enjoyed though, because you're there. You have to talk about what you see. You're on the spot. I did that for three years. And then the NBC affiliate hired me there as a morning anchor. And they said, had you ever anchored before? And I said, somewhat. I thought back to Santa Ana now where I sat in a chair mm-hmm. was recorded. I really didn't know. I was on a three-hour <laughs> morning show with a seasoned yeah. veteran and who was very funny, sarcastic, tough, But I don't think he knew I was from New Jersey because I I could stand my ground once I got the hang of it. But I remember it was, you have to get comfortable in front of the camera because you're on every day for three hours. And that's really how you get comfortable no matter what profession you're in. You just do it. The more repetition, the better you get. But I remember my first day, my blow dryer blew out. So my hair's half damp and I clip on the microphone. I'm used to holding one in the field and it's very different. And I was saying, okay, mic check really loud. And he's like, shh whisper. I was so nervous. And then I just got more comfortable and was able yeah. to do it. And uh, back in the day, I had this agent who I think she was doing me a favor by signing me and said, you know, Rolando Santos from Headline News saw your tape. He's in Santa Monica. You can meet him at this place for 15 minutes tomorrow. So I said, okay, I'm there. And I was met him and he said, okay, if you will fly you to Atlanta and test you. And I had watched Robin Mead, talk. Tom- Test next to Thomas, and I I was terrible. (laughs) But he said, "We're hiring freelancers. If you move yourself here, we'll use you." So I did that, and I was there for eighteen years.
0: Unbelievable. Wait a minute, though. On the test, were you really terrible, or you just being tough on yourself? (laughs)
1: It was next to Thomas Marvin. I was so nervous because it was this massive, you know, the CNN Center in Atlanta building. And it was Thomas who I had watched and and we became friends. So I even said, you're so good looking. I was so nervous. And he starts cracking up. He's (laughs) like, you weren't that bad. I was. I mean, I was okay. So I was fortunate enough that I was filling in on the weekends that was digitized, another word for taped, and was able to get better and get better. And then year after year, I, I got better at what I did. And then finally, I was able to fill in for Robin Mead and delight she was, and how much I used to watch her in Palm Springs. And I learned so much from just watching her and how comfortable she was. It's like she's in your living room and talking to you. And um, then, covering the Jodi Arias story, Casey Anthony first, Scott Peterson. Mm. Then, all of a sudden, Nancy Grace was there, and we evolved headline news, if you will, except really Robin showed the different programming slowly but surely after several years, maybe into 2011, 2012, into really a crime network because of how, for lack of a better word, popular the Casey Anthony trial was. And I remember the verdict came down that and we had been in meetings about what to do. We were all on verdict watch and I happened to be on and they said, throw to Nancy Grace. We knew that's what we were doing. She was live there. And I, it was me. I threw to her, and she said, "The devil is dancing tonight with the Casey Anthony trial." And that was it. I mean, the ratings were through the roof with Nancy owning that, with Tot Mom, and then Jody Arias, and and the various stories that the crime stories that we got to cover. I, I remember I, I also did news cut-ins at night. I worked a lot for Anderson Cooper Show. I
0: saw that in your book. You did yeah. work a lot
1: lot lot. I, if, if I were to psychoanalyze myself, I mean, it was a great way to kind of hide from anything I was going through or <laughs> my own problems. So it, it's been just such an amazing place to be for so many years and learning from the top of the top and being able, I, I'm in Atlanta. Anderson was in New York. A couple times I'd, I'd be in New York in the same building as him in the same studio with his crew and team who were amazing. But I was normally in what we call a flash studio in Atlanta. But I'd have an earpiece in and I'd listen to Anderson throughout the show because I was on maybe at, I'd say about 8, 10 p.m. and then eleven ten, okay. uh doing news cut ins. And I would listen to him and I would listen to his interactions with guests. I would listen to his uh, live reporting from behind the desk, breaking news. I, I, I just learned so much from him. And not only is he a, a wonderful person, he's so skilled without um, – seeming, he makes it seem effortless, but a lot goes into it. And I just learned so much from him. I'm fortunate.
0: There's a lot to that story. One thing though, that I, and you just said it right there. I I've noticed that every time I look at someone and they make it look effortless Mm -hmm. and don't take the bait, don't think that they just walked into it and they just do it cold. There are thousands of hours of practice and learning, and they weren't always that, that good but they too were looking for ways just to be curious and to watch others and look for mentors and just have that be really coachable on how to get better and better. Would you disagree with me on that?
1: Absolutely true. I was so nervous. I remember calling my dad, who I still call because he's an attorney, still not retired. I tell him he should if he doesn't want to, but I'll call <laughs> him and say, I did. This was before my first day at CNN. And he said, look, when I was first an attorney, I didn't know where to stand in court. I waited till the other attorney walked in first and I stood in the other spot. So no wow. one really knows what they're doing <laughs> until you do it and you learn. Yeah. I think, right, it's about learning and being able to or letting yourself quote unquote, make mistakes. Um, Mm -hmm. I have a story about public speaking that I included in the book because the families wanted me to host the panel at CrimeCon in New Orleans. And people think, oh, you're on TV. You'll be great. But I had a fear of public speaking as we hear those people do. Yeah. it's, It's so different. And being in a room with a camera, with a couple of great interns or a couple of producers that you've known for years is is easy for me because I've done it for so long. But right. being in a room with a crowd staring at me, and I remember Ken Joust, my boss at the time, who's still at CNN, who's wonderful, said to me, look, Susan, because I was in New Orleans and I said, I have to study. I'm nervous. I'm nervous. And he said, look, the bigger the room, the less stressful it is. He said, believe me, it's the smaller the room, the more, he said, at least for him, he gets nervous. And he was absolutely right. And I'm glad I overprepared and I was with the family, so it wasn't about me. So I was able to look at them and kind there of interview go. them, if you will. But the room was so massive, I couldn't see anyone. It was so dark. So that helped me too.
0: That does help, so I, doesn't it?
1: Yes. Prior to that, I was speaking at my high school, of all places, the Hunts School of Princeton in New Jersey. And they yeah. asked me to come back for alumni. And I thought, oh, I'm prepare them I'm good. I, I, this is my high school, but it was distinguished alumni who have done amazing things. One of them made prosthetics for those who <laughs> needed them in Africa. I'm not kidding. And I'm thinking, oh no. So I was last and I got up there and started to panic. And I see my sister in the front row looking at me saying, no, what are you doing? And I was mortified that I almost kind of, I started to sweat, my mouth got dry and I pretended to cry and walked off. It was the worst experience. Really? But that my parents and I still laugh about it because fast forward, I never, ever was not prepared or didn't write something for anything after that in my life. So if it were to happen somewhere, I'm glad it was my high school.
0: That's really, I mean, thanks for being so transparent. So I'll match that. Um, You're a lot smarter than I was. I went to school for communications and I thought about getting my master's in communications. But you know where I went? I went to school in Fargo, North Dakota, which is not warm. It's not warm. So it was at North Dakota (laughs) State University. And then from there, I went into business. I never, but in my current role, I do a lot of video and audio. And so there, in a very small way, I can relate to what you're saying about when you're behind a camera, there's, to me, if you have a great team around you, the production team, and there's such confidence that they got the ball. And when you're in front of people, it's, it's just, there's too many variables. It's just a wide open slate. So I I, I know exactly what you're talking about, about that that fundamental difference.
1: Yeah, we always want what we don't have, right? If I could do it again, yeah. I'd major in business. I wish I was more business. Savvy. What? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Come I'd on. still do what I do. You don't necessarily, those of you right. out there listening who are considering it, have to major in it. Um, it it helps, especially when I was at UCLA to get people to kind of that you know who can maybe help you, but I think times are different now with social media, but Right. I wish I majored in, in yeah. something else in hindsight. So
0: let's just put a bow on this. For everyone listening, though, there's a lot of lessons though in Susan's story about putting yourself out there, about being saying yes to things, um, and and learning and being comfortable with being coachable and getting better and better and better and always just learning. And I look at you now and look at your body of work. I mean, you're just an absolute pro.
1: So the key lesson there is um to keep doing it. And look, it happens to the best. Sanjay Gupta one of my friends amazing at what he does just you know how the saying is oh well they're not a brain surgeon it's, it doesn't it's not brain surgery he is a yeah. brain surgeon and we talked in makeup of all places and he said to me oh my gosh Susan when i first started he said I, it was tv so i just kept smiling and a producer said and he's talking about like a certain type, a certain disease or this or that something medical and they're like stop smiling and then they said to him and cuz he's like hello I'm Sanjay and then they said you need more energy and he started to get really loud and and they said all right stop so every my point is everyone starts out and they're not good at it you just don't see that they're not,
0: they're not good uh, the company I work with we do a lot of audios and videos and the first time I went in the studio and they thought I knew they thought I knew what I was doing and I didn't and <laughs> it was a train wreck and I was sweating <laughs> profusely it was profusely and They actually have the tape and they use it as blackmail against me saying, we will release this if, you know, it's just horrible. Let's fast forward to 2017, February 13th. You're a seasoned pro, you're hitting the mark, everything is just clicking. What happened on February 13th, 2017?
1: Yeah, that is when, as you know, in the news business, or some people may know this, may not, there's a rundown for, there's an A block, a B block, a C block, a D block. The A block is the top stories, B block, hmm, not so much, C, D, and it gets lighter as you go down in terms of importance or um, breaking news. So it was the A block, and we knew that there were two girls missing in Delphi, Indiana, and uh that was the story. It wasn't a huge story at that particular time, but Abby yeah. and Libby in Delphi, now knowing what I know, of course, in in hindsight, 13 and 14 years old, going out on a makeup day from school, a makeup snow day. So it was a Monday. It was nice for that area, high 40s in Delphi, Indiana. And they'd, hey, we want to go down the trails to the Monon High Bridge where some kids would go. I mean, just as when I first was at the bridge, and I can get more into that, but it's just so this massive abandoned railroad. So I pictured it much different than when I I visited there myself. But it's it's what kids did. And at 13 and 14, you don't have fear of heights like I do. And so they were down there on the trails and they asked Kelsey, Libby's sister, to drop them off. And she had to work, but she thought only a couple of years older than Libby. And she said, well, I feel like a mean sister lately. I should drive them. And Becky, your grandmother said, okay, you can go, thinking like, oh, they're not going to be on as we think now, like their cell phones, they're outside, beautiful day, drop them off. Well, they were supposed to meet Libby's father at the trailhead to pick them up and they never yeah. show. So of uh-huh. course you don't think the worst right away, a small town in Delphi, Indiana, less than 3000 people. So they, they wouldn't think the worst at all. Uh, the next day I was on set, February 14th, 2017, and I was anchoring and the producer said, they found the girls' bodies from Delphi. So mm. we're gonna go live with we have an interview. So bookers are working behind the scenes on the set or producers, and they say we have Ron Logan. You're gonna interview him from the set. So I said, Okay. So it's his property, that's where the girls' bodies were found down the hill near the trails. Um, and so I spoke to him. I said, Ron Logan, Susan Hendricks. We got to talk during the commercial break to test the microphones. Then I asked him, and he said, I can't believe this happened here. My sons were always down on those trails. It could have happened to them. It can happen to anyone. It's terrible, essentially. And uh, then it was discovered, soon released, that Libby, and I think this is when the interest, it blew up, if you will, in this story. Because it, it was found out that Libby hit record on her cell phone. And you could hear the person, this is what authorities thought at the time, the person they were interested in talking about, this person on the bridge, who you would hear down the hill. So first it was an image that the authorities released of a man on a bridge. And then you heard down the hill soon after. So they had an image of him and his voice. And Mike, Libby's grandfather, said to me, Susan, I truly think, fast forward 2019, when I first interviewed him in person, said, I truly believe that Libby was thinking, look at this creepy guy on the bridge. I'm gonna, uh, grandpa, wasn't this weird? That's what he thought. Really? she thought something was off and she hit record. Well, it, there's a lot of things that the authorities didn't release during this, but there's 43 seconds that we still really don't know all of what was on that video, but we do know that she hit record. So wow. people, if you're not, who are listening to this and may not be familiar with the case, you think, well, then there it is, slam dunk, you arrest the person on the bridge. But right. she was so far away that there, it's blurry. His face. You can't make that out. And he's looking down. It appears he has his hands in his pockets. And being in that town and less than three thousand people, let's say cut it in half. Let's just say twelve hundred a thousand men, let's say, in that particular age range, uh wear the that, that outfit.
0: Puffy jacket or a big blue jacket, right? Or Something they like thought, that.
1: Depending on who analyzed it and how much you analyzed it, and how much I watched it over and over again is was he that weight? So that's where we were on February 14th or a couple of days later. Um, yeah. and then fast forward when I was sent there.
0: In your book down the hill, uh, by the way, I was up late last night reading it and I was reading it again this morning oh, and I have to tell you it's a phenomenal book. And I've never, never read a book where I had, um, goosebumps so often. Uh, your writing style is so great, so precise, but you're a great storyteller. But chapter one just had me when you were just talking about the background, everything you just relayed here, but only in, in a little bit more detail. In your career as a broadcast journalist, you talked about how you were trained to move fast. You covered a lot of, a lot of tough stories in your career. I cannot even imagine, Susan, the type of stories, but there was, you know, you were trained to hit the mark. Never linger is the phrase you used. Never linger. No follow up. Don't get too close. Make sure you set boundaries. What was there about this particular case that caught your eye and attention?
1: Well, there are so many stories. And as I mentioned, the rundown, um, one that stood out in Palm Springs, of course, was Samantha Runyon. This little girl who was told, don't go away with strangers. Well, a, a man grabbed her and and killed her. Just you think of Polly class and all of those stories. They stood out to me. I interviewed her mother, Samantha Runyon. Those stay with you. When you are behind the set and there's a rundown and there's story after story after story and even interview after interview, It becomes very easy to compartmentalize. And and then, okay, the next day is another news cycle. So Mm. if you're not doing these long form specials or documentaries, you're not embedded with the family. And in 2019, I was lucky enough, I was able to meet the families. But when I was called into producer Brian Bell's office and he said, hey, Susan, we're gonna send you to Delphi. You remember that Snapchat murder? And that's what it was called in the beginning because Libby took a picture of Abby on the bridge and sent it to Snapchat. If I'm saying it correctly, posted it to Snapchat. And so yeah. it was known as that in the beginning. Uh and I said, Oh yeah, that's the that's the one with the down the voice on the oh yeah, okay, yeah. So even I had to say, which one is that? Which story is that? Because there's so many. And, and if you got connected and get connected to every single story, you wouldn't be able to do it. You wouldn't be on. able to do the job at all because you'd be too emotionally invested. So it became a way of compartmentalizing and i was able to keep a distance even when i was on the ground in the field in Palm springs as i mentioned we did a couple shootings i went to i was told to go to a mother's home sadly her son was shot and get the interview and get back and the next day it's a different story but we ne- you never follow up really in especially mm-hmm. local news even national news new things happen so when i was sent there and i got to know the families it was it was very different for me but right, that was my go-to. It's, it's move on. And and who I mean, just the most horrific stories, you feel it. Uh, I could bite the inside of my lip to not cry during a commercial break. I was friends with so many people at CNN and still am, but Mike Alanos and I used to co-anchor together. And he'd say, do you got this? Because with the Sandy Hook shooting, you don't get over that. So it's not like I'm immune to everything, but I couldn't uh, not do what I my job. So you kind of become there's a tunnel vision there. Well then I met the families in Delphi and then things changed for me. And that's why I wanted to write the book.
0: And now let's talk about the families in um, in, in Delphi. In your book, the foreword is written by Kelsey, which is yep. Libby's older sister. She talks about you, Susan, mm-hmm. about how you said that it is in quote, so much more than another story. And Tell us about that relationship with the family. Where did that start for you? And maybe it started with your first trip to Delphi.
1: It did. It, it truly did. Uh, my producer and I were were sent there by Brian, as I mentioned. And for journalists out there, reporters, or when you go to a place like that, you become very close with the team you're with, your producer. And there were two photojournalists who came in from Chicago. Depending on, there's someone in charge of sending of grouping together these teams, sending the photojournalists from Chicago was the closest to Delphi at that particular time. But if they're on some breaking huge story, it's about coordination. So the two photographers we met there, but I remember we did law enforcement first. So we were in the town of Delphi and I'm looking around and I can remember clear as day, just the farmland and the, the small, really quaint, how you felt like you were in sort of a, Pleasantville. It was just this cute uh-huh. town, and and uh, going up to Becky's door. Libby and Kelsey lived there. Becky and Mike, uh, the grandparents, and uh, uh, Libby's father, Derek, as well. So just ringing the bell, and it was Becky, and she said hi. And Kelsey was there. I remember at the door early on, and they invited us into their home. They were very open to doing interviews. Abby's family was a little more closed off even though they knew they needed the media because they knew they had a sketch early on of Hmm. who they were looking for. So, of course, it was spread the word. We got to find this guy and the public can help. Um, But, you know, the media can be intrusive at times. and, And if people aren't comfortable, who knows if I'd be comfortable? I don't think so. With camera crews at my door. Um, but Mike Libby's family respected that from the start. And I remember before I ever met Mike, it was in March of 2017, the girls had been murdered in February. And he said, look, our family speaks more, please respect Abby's family. And he read a statement from them. And it touched me. Mike really became the leader, if you will, in terms of, of guiding this and p- people really respected him. I still do. It was meeting Kelsey and meeting this family. And I remember. I've gotten closest, I think, to Kelsey and Becky and Mike, and and speaking to Becky, I said, uh, he, right before I was going to write the book, I asked her if it'd be all right if she and she, I said it would be from your perspective, and then I spoke to Kelsey and asked her to do the forward, and she said yes, and that was very touching wow. to me because I wanted it. I wanted people. It, it feels weird to write a book about. I didn't want it to feel like I'm just writing this to write this, to to get it out there and to somehow benefit. I wanted it to be from their perspective. And that's what I'm most proud of. Some of the reviews that I read, really, I mean, the reviews mean a lot, but because they see that it's a different type of crime book from the family's perspective, get forgotten on different networks. Look, on headline news, I mentioned earlier a couple cases, Casey Anthony, Jodi Arias, Scott Peterson. And the list goes on. Those are the accused and the convicted. I don't mention any of their families. Commonplace, right? To not, they're kind of a side note. I wanted the families to have a voice and to see it from their perspective. And where I'm most proud is when people read this say, oh, I knew all the details of the case, but I didn't know who these girls were because we always think of them on the day they died or not really how they lived. And I feel Mm -hmm. like I was fortunate enough because the family opened it up to me and other media showing video of Libby, her in her kitchen laughing. And I I was on Libby and Abby's Facebook pages that are now memorial pages and really getting to know the girls. I sat in my room while I was writing this and laughing. Libby was very funny. She got into her Aunt Tara's Facebook page and wrote, Libby's my favorite, case closed, (laughs) something like that. And so she really had a sense of humor. She was funny. She was smart. I was honored that Kelsey wrote that. And Kelsey's an amazing writer.
0: As you know, Kelsey talked about her journey about not wanting to talk about it and being really fearful and to go to sleep and walking across a parking lot. And then she went to CrimeCon and...
1: When Mike first mentioned it to me in his kitchen, he said, have you heard a crime con? I went, no. And he said, your face. I went, oh, he goes, it's not like Comic-Con. It's, I was going to ask it, you about that. He laughed. He said, I know, I know. He goes, it's a way to get the girls' names out there. We need to hand out flyers. And he said, it's nothing like that. Kevin Balf puts it on. So I've since got really got to know Kevin. This was in 2019. Yeah, the first crime con. I did a panel with the family and I've been doing it ever since. I, I just went to a panel in Orlando with the family. And they're under a gag order. I didn't talk about the case, but I talked about how crime can change you. But going back to that, it it really is. And I got to know, I reached out to her recently. I wasn't sure if Delphi would be able to come. Uh, It was Becky and Tara to this crime con in Orlando. And I was fine with it. I don't want to get them in trouble with anything in the gag order. I promised I wouldn't discuss anything that had to do with anything with the case. Uh, It was just about them personally. And Becky said, "No, I'll talk to Mike, and we'll see." And I didn't want to push it, but I reached out to Stacy Chapin—that's Ethan Chapin's mom from the College Idaho murders. He yes. was the one boy in that house. And I just reached out to her on Instagram and said, "I'm Susan Hendricks. I was a CNN for years." And you know, I mentioned—I said, "I'm so sorry," and I mentioned—I uh, said, I, "We're doing a panel coming up, and I'd love for you to be on it. It's about how life can change, and it really helps you connect to people." And I'll just talk about Ethan period. And I thought she reached back out. She's very nice. We back and forth for about a month. And then she said, okay, I'll do it. And she, I I didn't tell her the name of it right away, crime con, because it's, it can turn people off. And once, and I truly believe the reason why I wanted her to be there on stage, I truly, truly believe, because I've never seen anything like this. And you can't really judge until you see it. The connections Kelsey mentions, and I mentioned in the book, It saved her life. She really believes it does because you can be in your town or with family and friends and they say, we're so sorry. But what does that mean? If no one really connects, Kim Goldman got to know Kelsey through Croncon and saying, look, I know how you feel. And Kelsey was on Kim Goldman's podcast. And Kelsey said, she said, I feel for you. You were 18. All of a sudden you're an advocate for your sister and felt also guilty for dropping her sister off and then meeting the Golden State Killer family member made her say, okay, I'm not alone. Isn't that true without anything in life? So I felt like Stacey, although it was raw and new and it still is and you never, ever, ever get over it. Uh, with Ethan, he had just been killed, but her being on that stage, I'm a better person meeting her and I so appreciate her. And she said, you know, Susan, this is so new for me. She brought her best friend who I got to know too. It was wonderful. But she said, this is so new for, my son was just killed. And Joseph Scott Morgan, who I know very well, um, DNA forensic expert, but uh, he was doing a panel on the murder, but just about DNA, like what can you see and catch. And he's a very scientific, great person. Well, she goes into that panel because it's a four-day thing, four-day event. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sitting here. She says, "I see, Stacy, come here. Did you hear what I did?" I said, "No," and she said, "Oh my gosh," because you get close in that time period. She said she walked into the panel just to hear. And it's dark in there, but they have a Q&A at the end. And she walked up to the mic and said, I'm Ethan's mom. And the whole place froze. And Joseph Scott Morgan kind of froze and, you know, made news everywhere. You don't know they were great kids. And I said, and she said, I feel bad. I said, don't feel bad. You know, a- and Paul Holes, I can't, I can't stress it enough. He's, of course, the guy behind solving the Golden State killers. And he's an advocate and very close to the family members, held something on that Friday night. Where here's who was invited. It's it was Stacy Chapin, which I'm so glad, her friend who was with her, the Delphi Becky from Delphi, and okay. Tara, uh, Libby's aunt, and Becky Libby's grandmother. Also Gabby Petito's father, Joe Petito, who I've gotten to know, uh, Gabby Petito's stepdad, Gabby's wow. mom's stepmom, in a group, in a room. Now, I'm a journalist, so I didn't they didn't want any journalists, and I didn't mind at all. It was it, oh, and um BTK's daughter, Carrie Ross, and you know, I've gotten to know. I feel like they were all able in a way to lean on each other. And I wanted that for Stacy. Of course, it's always heartbreaking and it never goes away. But sorry for a very, very long answer on this. No. But CrimeCon is a, is a special place.
0: It seems that way. By the way, quick comment. So I'm here in Idaho Falls, Idaho, which is a long way away from um, University of Idaho. It's the other side of the state. But it absolutely... I mean I mean, just rocked the entire state because that oh, area that's obviously I didn't know that. Yeah, it's a small mm-hmm. town, obviously, where University of Idaho is. My daughter went to college there for a year. Wow. But um, but I have a lot of friends who have kids who were there during this whole time. And you talk about how it just rocks a small town. And again, I, I hate to even bring it up because I'm so I'm so many so detached from it when I think about what the families go through. Uh, I know
1: what you're feeling because I've felt that way too. Like I don't want to bring certain no, bring it up because it affects the town too.
0: Oh, it's just it's this tremor throughout the entire town and actually through the state also. When you think about really could someone, could someone actually do that? Or how could someone do that to someone else? Is this person just hiding in plain sight? And may, and maybe that's that's part of also uh, a question to you on the Delphi case. Give us give us an update right now on on what are the some of the latest developments in that case. It's still I it's still an unsolved murder case, correct?
1: Yeah, and you mentioned that it's the how, who, what, when, where, and why. And I mentioned this, and it's so true because it's a. The first question, let's say you're at Thanksgiving and you're talking about the murder with those four college kids. Why would someone do that? You never get the answer. There's never an answer. And if the answer is given, it never makes sense. And you're wondering nature, nurture, right? Are they hiding in plain sight? I mentioned Carrie Rawson, BTK's daughter. She didn't know. This guy who is in custody in Delphi, um, who was arrested after close to six years and names had come up, his name never did. Innocent until proven guilty, Richard Allen, a daughter who's married, a wife of 20 plus years, worked at CVS. Uh, Tara, Libby's aunt, walked in there on the day of the funeral to get pictures blown up of, to a certain size for the funeral. And she was crying. And, you know, in a small town, even in Atlanta, it's a big city. I go to the same FedEx. I know the FedEx person who works there. You just get to know people that where mm-hmm. you go a lot. And uh, she she was crying and he said, don't worry, it's on me. he did it and no one you are no and no one well i take that back he he's been arrested for the murders of abby right now there's a a lot surrounding that but i will say there were names that had come up and mike said to me throughout the investigation so 2019 my first time there i went back for a press conference where they showed a separate sketch a different one that looked a lot younger so there was a lot of frustration because law enforcement was doing what they can. I want to preface it with that. And their hearts were yes. in it. And they were asking the public, we need your tip. We need that puzzle piece. I think they believed, and who would blame them, that someone that the person on that bridge, someone would recognize in such a small town and come forward say, that's my Uncle Steve. That's my dad, Jim. Or that's this person or that person. That never happened. So they kept begging for tips, saying the tip line's open. We need you. Abby and Libby need you. That created this, oh, they need our help. That to me, unwillingly, somehow being the perfect storm of creating a witch hunt, if you will, in terms of the second sketch came out, they were putting side by sides of high school students from Delphi, finally law enforcement. I mean, right away, they said, stop doing that. You're ruining lives. So they wanted the involvement, but then said, wait, not so involved. Just they really wanted the the family members of whoever did this to come forward and say, I'm positive. This is so-and-so. And then, of course, the wild west of the Internet and uh, Internet slews. some people with very good intentions, others not so much, um, started to criticize family members. It was really disgusting. There's a, a low gross side to that. Um, but law enforcement superintendent, Doug Carter, who I speak of often and I believe was the pillar of all of this and had to deal with so much saying and getting question after question uh. At that press conference in 2019, there's so much to tell. That's why I'm jumping around. He did say, we have something to show you. Um, We believe through new tips, through a witness, we believe that you lived in Delphi or still live here. We also believe you could be in this room. So that was the April 22nd press conference, 2019. And I had just been there the first time a few weeks before. So I'm back in there with new photojournalists from, because the others were what have you around the country covering different breaking stories for CNN. And I remember the photojournalist behind me saying, in this effing room? And I said, yeah. (laughs) It, It would be something you'd see in a movie and say-
0: That is a movie moment.
1: That wouldn't happen. You wouldn't believe it. You wouldn't believe it. And I interviewed him soon after and I said, do you really think he was in the room? And I knew that they were keeping the the public, the media out of any details. I mean, nothing. Even the family members didn't know the cause of death. Mm-hmm. Mike, Patty, um, ID the bodies and, and saw Libby, but he didn't speak of it. So it, it was the families too. They wanted, they didn't want false confessions. They said it could interfere with the investigation. So there was really little information. Even when I was first there and I interviewed law enforcement, there was a sign above the door that said, "Shh, the media could be listening. Before Richard Allen was arrested, the families would tell me they're at stoplights and they look over and say, Could that person staring at us? Could that be them? Unreal. You never Unreal. you don't know who it is. And, no. and how do they feel safe? I remember interviewing Sheriff Tobe Lesenby at the time, again, wonderful person. And I said, You've heard the what Libby recorded on her phone. I know you can't tell me what's on there. And he said, Well, I'm thinking about it right now. And he said, I I listen to the voice and I say, who is that? Who is that? He said, I know the voice, but I don't know who it is. Because think about how many people you interact with every day. But then, you know, now there's, there's criticism everywhere. Right. But the noise is like, how did the wife not know? Well, interviewing Carrie Ross, and she didn't know it was her dad who would say like, fill up your tires before college and hear scrambled eggs and walked her down the aisle too. And she didn't know a grown daughter, a wife and, uh, all of a sudden an arrest. So certain names have come up. If if those listening and watching are familiar, is uh, Keegan Klein, who went under the guise of Anthony Schatz and was catfishing young girls in the area, communicated with the girls right before the murders. So, but law enforcement wouldn't say this is the guy we think he's it. He did it. They'd say, if anyone has interacted with at Anthony Shots handle, please. Come forward. And Kelsey and law enforcement, all the families, they worked well together. Um, Abby's grandmother, Anna, told me that some of the officers put off retirement. Some of them had the girls on their screensavers to remind them. So it's not like they were sitting back doing nothing. I remember that day, almost six years to the day, when Richard Allen was in custody. I'm in my car, and a friend of mine, Dan, worked at CNN and had been to Delphi with me, worked on the podcast. And he texted me, Delphi guy in custody. And that's when you knew it was serious because never had they said anyone was even a suspect and someone's under arrest. I knew that they had something.
0: So when that happened, though, help me understand the family reaction on that.
1: As soon as I heard it, I thought, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, I was driving and I, I came home and I waited a little bit. And then I called Becky right away. I went to my room and I called and no one answered. And then I hung up and was sitting there. She called me back and said, hi, Susan, I'm at a wedding, my nephews. I had to walk out of the room. She said, it's what everyone's talking about. I hope I'm not ruining the wedding, just like Becky would say. And I said, what do you think? She said, oh my gosh, do you believe it? She said, he worked at CVS. I said, what did Mike say? She said, Mike's still skeptical. It had just happened. It it was an, an elation. like That's what they had been working towards. But she did say something that stood out. She said, I don't know what my purpose is anymore. And I said, because every morning she'd wake up. And I think what really helped Becky stay afloat, if you will, and not completely collapse every day is every day she posted on Facebook, today is the day. She said, knowing one day would be the day. And she would post the flyer. And so she said, I woke up this morning or the next day I talked to her too. And she said, I didn't have that to do. And I felt... She always had a spirit about her and a gung-ho energy that was gone. There were so many secrets that even after the arrest, there were some. And, you know, Becky wrote on Facebook this long post that I included in the book because I agreed with her. I thought, you know what? The family should have a say. But legally, I mean, the right, the public's right to know I was a CNN. I couldn't sign in. But I understood. She said, with everyone out there on the internet, there are some good ones and bad ones, but I saw what people are capable of, and there's witnesses here, and they're minors, and they were minors at the time, but they dig deep and they expo- they bring up things that have nothing to do with the case. She was worried. She said, if McClelland, I trust the prosecutor, if he wants it sealed, there's a reason. We should respect that. Well, the judge eventually um, released that, and we did hear some details about there being an unspent bullet, which was um, what connected, apparently, Richard Allen to that bullet, his gun. Yeah, that's something that stood out to me, which is, is infuriating when you look back on it, he apparently went to a conservation officer. It was in a parking lot in a grocery store right after the murders. And the video was not released yet or the image on the bridge. Richard Allen shows up and says, hey, I was there, um, but I didn't. I saw some young kids down there, but I didn't. Did you see Abby and Libby? No. What were you wearing? This is describing the outfit. This is what I was wearing. Okay, thank you. Got it. And then nothing. And this is 2017. Apparently, the law enforcement said the FBI, it was misfiled. So apparently through, we weren't getting the full story, but we thought, (laughs) okay, did they go back through the files, so to speak? I don't know. It's on a computer, a literal file, and see that and then- figure out who it was, Richard Allen, and go to his house. Well, it was, how did you let this guy slip through the cracks? Well, maybe because it was such a small town, doesn't look like a monster, works at CVS, is a father, <laughs> is a husband, could be you that walks up and says, hey, I just want you to know I was there. Wouldn't that be maybe filed under a witness that he didn't see anything? He said he was on wow. his phone looking at stocks or looking at fish. So they somehow- reconnected with that file. And I'm filling in some blanks here because we still don't know exactly what led to him. Was it someone re-looking at the file or did someone call in? Was it his daughter, a tip? I don't know. And I, I'm speculating completely. I have no idea.
0: Do you think of yourself now as this advocate for crime victim? How, how do you look at yourself, what you're doing?
1: It, it's a great question to ask. It's There was a merger um, with... Um, Warner Media. And so HLN live programming was eliminated during this. And there had been with Discovery and uh Warner Media and it, it meant there were whispers around. Would live programming at HLN still be around? It turns out they mm-hmm. eliminated all of this. We were kind of prepared, but I'd been there for so many years. It was like losing a family, like losing a work family, like the everyday yep. of, hey, how are you? And so that, but it really allowed me, I felt like it really allowed me to focus on on writing this. I, I wasn't really? on live TV anymore, or focusing on that, or, or I had to focus and, and really write from the heart. And I did that. And I believe through meeting all of these families and connecting in a way that I believe I felt comfortable enough because of Delphi, I do feel like their stories aren't told enough and they need to be told. So I do feel like an advocate, not to say that there's others out there and viewers who Who don't feel for the families. I know that they do. I I think of Kim Goldman though, remember her face during the verdict. If you're old enough to remember with OJ, she always told me she felt like Ron was an afterthought, her brother, like kind of end friend. And that's a little different because of the celebrity aspect, but it's like, what about us? And that's the biggest compliment I got is from Becky. It was an email. She read the book and said, thank you. It's a different, book. it's our perspective during the ups and downs with a different look on how this crime affected the town and the family. So I hope I know that I'm an advocate and I know there are others out there too. Most people who care about the families and that should be the focus.
0: Well, I think you did it really well. I, I appreciate you sharing this story with us. And now where would we go to follow you and also this incredible story of Libby and Abby?
1: On Instagram is where I post the most. Uh, and I'm on various podcasts, this one included, and it's been wonderful to be on here. Surviving the Survivor is one of my favorites and being able to discuss really my aspect and my experience through the family's eyes and on Court TV with Vinny Politan as well. So I'll be following it throughout the trial whenever that is. And I, I feel like I am a voice for the families. Right now, they're under a gag order. They're respecting that too. But I know that at least Becky's side of the family found solace through talking to not just me, different media members and found a connection there. And And I hope that they get their voice back. I know that she is posting through her Facebook page. Follow Becky Patty if you'd like to send her a kind note. Um, She's on Facebook. She's on Instagram. Also, the Abby and Libby Memorial Park, which is amazing. The Abby Mm. and Libby Memorial Foundation, too. It's a foundation and a park. It was built during this um, all through volunteer. And a quick story here. Abby's grandfather told me once that it was early on in the process, but he saw a guy with a tractor who was really into it and helped and was doing so much for free. And he, he started talking to him and he said, yeah, my brother was murdered. They never found the guy, but this is my way of helping. So this Memorial park is amazing. There are kids there now laughing pictures of Abby and Libby, because I will end on that. That's the family's biggest fear that the girls will be forgotten, but through this park, they won't be.
0: So Susan, you have given so many, um, interviews on this topic, and is there, is there a question or a, a fact about this case that I have not asked or that other podcast hosts just never seem to get to? What do you think I haven't gotten to in this interview?
1: That's such a good question. It's a question that I asked a lot of early on. It's it's what keeps you going. To Mike, I asked that too early on, and he said, what keeps me going is He said, I say hi to Libby's picture every morning, is what was lost, what was taken from us. He also said, I think at the last 15 minutes of the girl's lives, which I don't know what he knew or uh, he he thinks about it, he saw more than most. I remember Kelsey saying, you know, Mike, my, my grandpa is the only one who kind of who knows some things because of identifying Libby. But she said, he hasn't talked about it. I don't think I want to know right? It's how much you can absorb. But it's it's really what keeps these families going. And it's leaning on each other and the memories of the girls. And I think that is the question that people wonder about. And I, I think it's an answer that I want people to leave with. It's, you don't know what you're capable of or, or what you're capable of surviving or getting through. Because we all have something, um, whether it be illness, whether it be the loss of a loved one, whether it be a tragedy like this one—it's lean on each other, tell your stories, and there'll be people out there who have similar ones.
0: Well, in, in some of my preparation, I've listened to a lot of interviews with you on podcasts and uh, learning more about con. And what's amazing to me is that it feels like you—you you know everybody, and they know you—and there's this community of of online um, investigators or people who are just passionate about this. Do I have that right? It feels like a really almost like a subculture. Is that right?
1: It is. It's something I've been lucky enough to be able to be part of. Thanks to Mike and Becky for inviting me to CrimeCon. But it's something that and the crime community who I do say there are bad intentions out there that you see in podcasts and there are wonderful intentions. But I've gotten to know Anya from Murder Sheet who texts me now and then and we're friends and (laughs) there's there is a connection of covering this and there's A crime connection, if you will, a connection through maybe it's loss, or I I think it's Kelsey too. Um, Her and I have gotten close and she said it best. She said, Susan, because I said, Oh, you know how people say, Oh, I know how you feel. You really don't. And she said, No one really does except someone who's Mm -hmm. been through what I've been through. Look, I've been on the shows with people talking about Richard Allen's rights. I get that. Inessential Proven Guilty, the attorneys, and all of the noise, but it's still. When at at the root of it is the families without these girls. That's what it is, and it's not just justice for Abby and Libby, which we all say. It's the loss and the emptiness in their homes. And Becky said to me, "You know, Susan, sometimes it's the little things. Dental insurance, the cards come, and Libby's name isn't on there anymore." And um, a positive in this, I believe, and and a bit of light and hope. Kelsey told me in Austin, Texas, we were together at dinner with a group of us, and she said, "You know, Susan." Uh, she was engaged at the time. Now she's married to uh, Caleb. And she said, you know, I, I can't have kids. I won't have kids until someone's found because I just can't. I need to focus. And I didn't say anything then because I it had been like she was almost talking to herself, not really me or wanting my opinion. But I wanted to say, oh, you should or if you want. And I, I didn't say anything. And uh, I knew that she had been determined. That had to be her life's goal. I mean, that was it. And Back to Stacey Chapin, I had heard her tell the story and others that they even feel guilty, maybe laughing or having too much fun or, or especially Kelsey, like this is not fair. I have all these milestones in my life and, and my sister does not Libby. Mm. And of course, but you have to move on for those around you and who love you. And the girls would have wanted that. And I was talking to Becky uh, this past summer and she said, Kelsey's pregnant and she's having a girl and i see oh. all of her posts her names ellie and she's so cute. i feel like that's a light and so much hope and and uh, hope for the future uh, the memorial park i believe did that the girls you feel it there i believe um with kelsey's baby and just living and always including um libby as well and they go on vacations and they they bring like a blanket with libby's image and pictures and you never it never goes away the loss
0: i cannot imagine but Your book uh, takes all of us one step closer to uh, the family's perspective, and it did it so well. The name of the book is Down the Hill, My Descent into the Double Murder in Delphi. Um, Susan, this has been a lot of fun having you here. Uh, I want to end, though, with a question I ask all of my guests. I'm Uh, nervous. You know, we're all here to live a better life and to get a little bit better every day. So from your perspective, what would your I Dare You Challenge be for all of us? Something we should do or try to help us live maybe a little bit of a better life. What do you think?
1: I would say I dare you to make the call or tell someone something that you've been putting off. Um, Let's say, you love your family members, you don't really say it out loud. Do something so you won't regret it later on. And I've learned that through back to meeting all of these families. It's like, if I only did this, did I say I love you? When is the last time I saw them? And not to go through life with that morbid thought, but to always give of yourself. And you know, I, I always when my mom and dad call, I'm lucky enough to have my mom and dad here. I see mom sell. I'm like, I'm going to get it. You just, you <laughs> in life, just always appreciate what's around you. And I, that's a blanket statement. It's easy to say, not so much easy to do. Be thankful for what's around you and not always thinking I'm not doing enough or I'm not enough because social media, we all know there's wonderful things that come with it, but also you feel like you're not doing enough, or you should be at this point or should be at that point. It's like, appreciate the point you're in because it does go by so fast and appreciate those around you.
0: Susan, that's a great idea. You challenge. And it reminds me in your book, when you're uh, talking about the uh, Kelsey's family in that morning, that uh, their family never said goodbye. They always said, I love you. Mm -hmm. And that your challenge is a direct reflection of that. Yeah. Pick up the phones, uh, say what you got to say and um, do that. So I appreciate that challenge very much. And Susan, this has been fun on a very personal level, getting to know you. And I appreciate you coming on the podcast and giving us this update, not only the history of it, the family's perspective about what is next. And this story is still unfolding. So thank you. As only a veteran broadcast journalist can do, giving us this perspective. It was great having you on the show.
1: Well, I'd love to come back. And after the trial, when the family can speak again, I would love to bring them along because you would really love who they are and uh, just the memories they have to share. And uh, and I'm hoping for the right person in custody and a speedy trial and just uh, justice to be served. And thank you so much for having me on.
0: Okay, that was Susan Hendricks. What an interview. And again, I cannot tell you what a thrill it was for me. I look at Susan Hendricks as one of the people that I look to as just world-class in what she does, one of the best interviewers anywhere. I watch her, and I learn from her. So what are you going to take from this interview? Well, for me, one of the things is her take on how when we start out something brand new, we're not good. And that's okay. It's part of the process. I want you to think about who in your life do you look at and you think, man, oh, man, they make it look effortless. The dirty little secret is, That wasn't always the case. When the lights are on and they make it look effortless, what you don't see is that when the lights are off, they're working, they're practicing, they're coachable. So whatever new project or thing that you're gonna be pursuing, and maybe you're holding back because you don't know what to do, accept that as that's just part of the process. It's just part of it. So accept it. You're not gonna know what you're gonna be doing. You're gonna be horrible at it. You're gonna be a train wreck (laughs) and that's okay. That might be the point, because from there, you put in the work. And day by day, month by month, year by year, you become world class, the best at what is important to you. Now, make sure you follow Susan on Instagram. And also, I invite you to check out the book, Down the Hill. It's a great book, especially if you're interested in this type of a topic, true crime, but also the, the perspective from the families. I think the work that Susan did and her compassion and how she looked at this as more than a story, but it's about family, and what respect that she showed to not only the families, but also to Abby and to Libby. Just inspiring to me. Okay, everyone, that was episode 99. Hang on, we're going to the bonus content in just a second. Next week, episode 100, and I can't wait for you to hear that. (laughs) And We're gearing up for it, and um, it's really surreal that we're up into triple digits. So I can't wait to see you back here next week on the I Dare You podcast, everyone. Thanks for tuning in, and here now is the bonus content you've been waiting for. See you next week. I want some closure here. I want some closure. When does this go to trial?
1: There's no such thing in this case or any case, but, right, you want whoever did this. Now, if Richard Allen is innocent, and the family members, I know, believe this, as would any American citizen or anyone. If he's innocent, you don't want him convicted of evidence. Has to be connected to him. That's a juror's job. Is there reasonable doubt? Is there enough evidence? And they make that decision by no means with the family members. Think about all the work they went through for the years, handing out, getting the word out. Would they want someone who didn't do it? put away and someone roaming free who was capable of this. So getting that out of the way, it's, they were, he wrote, uh, after his arrest, he wrote a letter to the judge and said, I didn't realize, essentially I'm paraphrasing how expensive attorneys were. I'm at the mercy of the court. I need attorneys. So the first judge, let's go back a little bit. Once he was arrested said, I'm out, I'm off this case. There's too much. He he said, bloodlust, the, the the media is overbearing. Delphi can't handle it. A judge hmm. was assigned to it, Judge Frangal. She assigns attorneys, Baldwin and Rosie. Two attorneys, they're on it. There's a gag order issued after both attorneys release a letter. His name is Richard Allen. They say, Rick didn't do this. Great guy didn't do it. Again, I'm paraphrasing. Well, yeah. the judge says, you know what? No one could talk. We're not trying this in the court of public opinion no one can speak anymore well the the attorneys released what was considered a frank's motion they wanted the the search warrant for richard allen's home squashed they felt like that someone running for sheriff uh made up stuff in there to just to win the election and uh that that's what they were alluding to maybe create you know it's it's doubt to me. It, it to me, mm-hmm. it's a violation of the gag order. They released a 136 page, what was disguised as a Frank's hearing. In my opinion, of they could have written something that was quote unquote leaked about the search warrant, and if they thought they had a right to search that home, but let's say, and there's rules around search warrants. Let's say they got they were looking for one thing. Let's say they were looking for a gun, and they found clothes or found a jacket. That would be up to the judge to decide what is admissible in court and what is not. Well, along with this and the 130 other pages, they wrote about how they believed it was an Odinus cult that yes. killed Abby and Libby. They named names of people that had apparently, and and there are attorneys out there that I've been on court TV with who say everything in that 136-page document has been part of evidence. Well, evidence- has gone on for close to six years before anyone. So they may have looked into so many people. I mean the FBI was there, law enforcement, that's their job. Go through the the tip line and, and and investigate, but no one was ever called a suspect, right? To me that says they weren't. Well they they Odinism and Odinist cult. I mean this 136 page document, you you couldn't really make it up. I wow. believe it was a way around the court order. Fast forward, and again if these attorneys, it's their job to defend Richard Allen. I am not course. dismissing any of that and mm-hmm. at all. But I, I do feel like it was a violation of the gag order. Fast forward, crime scene photos of Abby and Livy were leaked. And uh, Baldwin admits it was someone that he knew out of his office that had access to that. So the, the photos are leaked to to various my goodness people Uh, and murder sheet is a wonderful podcast um with and kevin if you'd like to listen to that and they actually i
0: listened to that yeah
1: yeah they're they're amazing great people they got the crime scene photo someone sent it to them they called law enforcement in delphi and said we have what do we do And this like right away and and think about what that does to the families i i i Looked on Becky's Facebook page and I just said, thinking of you, I'll text her every now and then like different things, but I don't want a back and forth. I don't want to get any really to know what I want her to know I'm thinking of her, but she posted on Facebook, which I repost a lot of her posts. It said, these are the pictures you should be seeing. And it was pictures of the girls, not the crime scene photos. And uh, someone reached out to me, not Anya and Kevin, someone said, do you want to see them? I said, no, I I, I do not. What would that do? What would that do to any of this? And I'm not supposed to see them. I don't want to see them. So this that was maybe the last straw for this judge. So she calls a hearing. It's the first time she's allowing cameras. They go into chambers and it was apparently recorded. Well, then she comes out and says, turn of events. The attorneys are off the case. I have to reassign attorneys. Done. The attorneys apparently said, "Okay, we don't want to be embarrassed in front of the court. You're going to sanction us or kick us off the case, if you will." And I'm paraphrasing here on exactly what went down. But the attorneys now say we're back on. We want the judge off the case because we'll do it pro bono and legally. She it can it's up to Richard Allen legally, and so the wow. Indiana uh, Supreme Court has to decide what's going to happen next. And sadly, Judge Gull had a medical emergency. I know this is convoluted and it's still um, going on, but. So, we'll see what happens. But I know it has been postponed the trial. Right now, it's next October, October,
0: next uh, October,
1: yeah, but, but these they have been assigned to different attorneys by Fran Gull. We'll see what the Indiana Supreme Court decides, and will the Rosie Rosie rather and Baldwin be back on the case, and will the judge still be on the case? So. All of this, and think of the family still going through this, saying, what the hell is going on? We just want justice, no matter who it is. But enough of the, there was a gag order in place for a reason, and I think it's vital.
0: Unbelievable.
1: So, indication of how bizarre and how many turns in this case.